All right, join with me in prayer as we begin. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth and of mankind, and the one who has ordered our life from the beginning for our good, for your glory, we pray that you would uh, teach us and instruct us at this time to understand your word and your ways, uh, the gift of marriage and uh, what your word has to say about it. We pray that you would instruct us and bless this whole day uh, unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 24, which is of marriage and divorce. If you're using the hymnal, that would be page 862. Thank you. And uh, has six articles in this chapter. And I'll actually begin, though, by reading a passage of Scripture. All right, chapter 3, no, sorry, chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the uh, beginning of the institution of marriage at the beginning before the fall in the garden. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and so made a woman out of the man, out of his side, out of his rib, and brought the woman to the man. Uh, and so the, the creation of woman and, and marriage happening here at the same time as the two of them designed to be uh, complementary for one another, and uh, these two become one flesh. Uh, and verse 24 makes the point that this wasn't just true of Adam and Eve, but therefore, this is the way it is. Therefore, uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When Jesus is asked about marriage, where does he go to? He goes back to the beginning. Uh, we should look to the way God has ordered it, the way God has designed it, uh, whenever we have questions about the nature of marriage uh, and the way it's supposed to work. Let's begin then with Article 1 of the Confession of Faith. Sorry, Article 1 of Chapter 24. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So, there's some pretty fundamental things here in the first article. It's good that these things were put in our confession of faith, as they've only grown more relevant over time. Uh, and here in the article, it's simply saying, you know, who are the parties to a marriage? Uh, who, who is it that forms a marriage? Uh, one man and one woman. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. So there's at least two things here. First of all, it's uh, what we say uh, call heterosexual. 
in, in design, that it's a man and a woman, not any other combination, uh, both humans and one male and one female, uh, that that is uh, what a, a marriage is um, by definition. We see that, of course, in the way it's designed in Genesis 2 and affirmed all throughout Scripture. Other variations, whether same sex or human and animal or any other combination, you know, is uh, forbidden. Not just, it does not, is not marriage, but, he, you know, altogether uh, is, is forbidden uh, as, a, as a sexual union. So marriage is to be between a man and a woman, and then also it's to be between one man and one woman. Uh, not one man and two women, not uh, one man and five women, not five men and one woman, you know, not any other combination, just one man and one woman. Uh, it should be only one of each. Uh, polygamy is usually what's uh, given the, the word, the word used to describe marrying more than one wife. Uh, but uh, polygamy, polyandry, there's other versions of that where you have more than one spouse. Those are all violations of God's design. Uh, it is not lawful for any man to have more than one wife, not, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. And again, we could go back to the beginning. How did God design it? Those, those two should become one flesh. We have uh, the, the first person to commit polygamy was Lamech, who is uh, an unsavory character of the line of Cain, uh, who gives a, a bad uh, genealogy, we will, if you will, to this practice. Um, the way Genesis portrays this, noting its origin. And Jesus, as well, when he cites Genesis, uh, even more clearly in Greek, these two shall become one flesh. And who was the most likely person in Old Testament Israel to have more than one wife? Who was the most likely person to have more than one wife in ancient Israel? What were you going to say, Alfred? The Old Testament. Who is the most likely person? What, what did you say, Luke? The king. The king, right. And who is explicitly forbidden to not multiply wives? The king. <laughs> in, in Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, uh, the king was not to multiply wives. And, of course, they did, but that was against God's law. Um, Leviticus 18.18, 18, also, depending on how you interpret it, some people interpret it to forbid all polygamy. Uh, at the very least, it forbids having two uh, sisters, uh, being married to two sisters at the same time, uh, which is, of course, we're going to come into that in our sermon uh, as we come to Jacob, uh, who, who does that very thing. So clearly what he did was uh, contrary to God's law, uh, at the very least, even if Leviticus 18.18 18 didn't for- forbid more explicitly. Um, but we could go to, to various arguments from Scripture um, for example, it's interesting, I hadn't really heard this argument, and then like three commentaries on the Confession of Faith all mentioned it, but when Jesus talks about divorce, and you know, if, if uh, a man unlawfully divorces his wife and then marries another, he commits adultery. Um, how is it that he commits adultery by marrying another wife? Because he's still obligated to the other. And so marrying to the second wife is considered adultery. That's only the case if polygamy is forbidden. Because, of course, if polygamy was not forbidden, then there wouldn't be anything wrong with marrying another wife. Does that make sense? So, you know, it, 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 it presumes, assumes the fact that polygamy is forbidden. 
Um, so who should get married? One man, one woman. The next article speaks of the ends of marriage. Uh, end, you know, like we have in the first shorter catechism question, what's the chief end of man? Here, talking about the end of marriage, not like when does marriage end? We're talking about what's its goal, what's its purpose, what's its telos, you know, where, well, what is the, the purpose and goal of marriage? And here it says, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. Uh, so the lists here basically three or four, kind of four I'll list them as four uh, ends of marriage, although two of them are closely related. First, for the mutual help of husband and wife. Second, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue. And then third, for the increase of the church with a holy seed. And fourth, for the preventing of uncleanness. Now, can you guess which of those four the Baptist confession dropped out? When the Baptists made their confession of faith, they based it on the Westminster Confession, but they changed a few things. Can you guess which of those four ends of marriage they left out? Increase of the church with the Holy Seed. Yeah, yeah, they, they left that one out. You know, your, your view of baptism, you know, is kind of connected to other things too. Um, here, one end of marriage uh, is the increase of the church with the Holy Seed. Um, and we see that not only from the the first marriage, you know, of course it was before the fall, but wasn't just to populate the earth with humans, but humans made in the image of God unto his glory. Uh, but then also in Malachi, where it's talking about why did God make them one? You know, what was he looking for? Godly offspring. And all this was what God was looking for from uh, the marriages, at least of his people. But it was kind of fulfilling that original end that marriage was designed for to begin with. So, mutual help of husband and wife. Of course, the woman is made for the man as a helper fit for him. Uh, so, obviously, the wife is uh, for the help of the man, but also in, in ne- not necessarily the same ways, but uh, in a complementary way that the husband is a help to his wife um, in the sense that you might see in the book of Ruth, you know, how, how marriage is described as finding rest for Ruth, uh, that uh, he, he puts his protection over her. It's not saying that they help each other in the same way. First um, Corinthians would say, you know, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. But they are both, design, marriage is designed for the mutual good of each one, uh, for their mutual help of husband and wife. They are companions. Uh, they are uh, those who are closely knit uh, for that fellowship and that help that they uniquely, as man and woman, uh, offer one another. Then also the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's one reason why it's important to have a man and a woman. Uh, But they are uh, designed to uh, increase mankind with uh, legitimate issue. Those who will uh, be heirs, who will create families, who then, of course, create society uh, in an orderly way. The increase of the church, we already talked about that. Um, and then for the preventing of uncleanness, which was not really necessary before man's fall, but since the fall, uh, with the temptation to sexual immorality, uh, Paul would use that as another reason to get married. You know, I would have every man have his wife and every woman her husband because of the temptation to 
sexual immorality. Maybe if they are particularly gifted, at least for the time, uh, to be single without uh, feeling that temptation, it might be better for them not to get married. Uh, But uh, for everyone else, they they should get married because of this additional reason um, as as a remedy against uh, sexual immorality. Of course, simply being married uh, isn't enough. One should be married and then love one's spouse, you know, for that to be, to, to meet that end. You know, of, of marriage. Any questions on these first two articles? Who, who gets married and what, why they should get married? Right. Right. Both of them help the other one do the, the work that they're designed for. You know, that uh, they, those, the, the work each one does helps the other one to do the work that that one does. Yes, husband and wife are designed for one another. Right. All right, Article 3. Who you can marry and whom you should marry. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. So, First, who can marry? Um, All sorts of people can marry. Um, All sorts of people, both laymen and clergy. You know, that was a big issue in the Reformation that uh, the Roman Catholic Church forbid uh, its its clergy from getting married. And so they're saying, no, both laymen and clergy, both those ordained, not ordained, all sorts of people can get married. We might also say that it's not unique to Christians. Pagans get married too. Uh, so all sorts of people, not just Christians, but people in other religions too. It's an ordinance like civil government that would be uh, found throughout the earth. Um, and uh, we would find that in, in Scripture. It's ordained in, in creation. It's a natural ordinance. It's not a sacrament. Uh, like the Roman Catholic Church would say, it's not unique to uh, the church. And uh, it should be honorable in all. Those who forbid marriage, you know, that's like a teaching, a doctrine of demons, Paul calls it. Uh, so we don't want to, to do that. <clears throat> and Paul himself says, don't I have a right to, to, get, to get married, to lead a believing wife uh, around on my journeys if I wanted to? I have that right. I'm not taking that right. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, he says, Barnabas and I, we, we could get married, as the uh, apostles and the brothers of the Lord did. Uh, do, and uh, we just choose not to use that right. Uh, but the Roman Catholic Church would, would deny him that right. But it's lawful for all sorts of people to marry, but only those who are able with judgment to give their consent. Uh, so not those who are too young uh, to do that or who are otherwise unable to give with judgment their consent. Um, nor should they get married without their consent. Um, so consent is important in marriage. Uh, we find that even in the example of, 
Rebecca, where, yes, the, the, the father and the uh, brother is, is involved there in the proceedings, but they also ask the woman, you know, will you go with this man? Uh, and, and she says, yes, it's a covenant. Uh, both parties are, are promising uh, these promises to one another, and so they should be able to make that choice. There's more details on some of this in the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. You know, in addition to the Confession of Faith here, of course, there's also what's in the Catechisms regarding the Seventh Commandment, and there's also, they had things in the Directory of Worship for the solemnization of marriage, and there's some more details that they would have uh, in there, which, of course, is not um, adopted by our denomination. We have our own Book of Church order with more details on marriage, too. But it's kind of helpful background for this point, because there they said, the parties are to be of years of discretion, fit to make their own choice, or upon good grounds to give their mutual consent. They also would say that parental consent is required for first marriages and recommended for other marriages, but they would also add, parents ought not to force their children to marry without their free consent, nor deny their own consent without just cause. You know, and so holding a balance here, of, of both parental authority as well as the, the free consent of those who are getting married. So who can get married? All sorts of people, you know, who can, with judgment, give their consent. Who should you marry is a little more narrow, right? It's not like you should get married to anyone who can marry. <laughs> uh, you as a Christian should marry only in the Lord. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, of course, gives a lot of instruction on marriage. And in verse 39, speaking of... Well, there it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So again, you have this idea of consent, like she, she, you know, don't, no one gets to force her to marry someone else, like she marries whom she wishes, but there is a condition here of, that she should only marry in the Lord, uh, and so that would be true of, of Christians generally, that they should marry in the Lord. Marry a Christian. And confession goes a little more specific here, uh, those who profess the true Reformed religion uh, should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Uh, or those who are godly should not be unequally yoked by marrying such as are notoriously wicked in this life or maintain damnable heresies. Let's say there's someone who's not necessarily under church discipline, who's a member of a church, but denies that Jesus is God. It's like, no, you should still not marry that person. <laughs> um, you you should, should evaluate their, their character, be... Uh, equally yoked with this person because marriage is designed to be uh, the marriage of those who are, are fit for one another. And you are going to be uh, living together and want to be uh, well yoked. One reason why you should be married only in the Lord is all of the exhortations of Scripture about the dangers of marrying someone who might lead you astray and lead your children astray um, into ungodly ways if they are not uh, godly. We can think of Deuteronomy 7 or Nehemiah 13, uh, where Nehemiah is like, foreign, you know, pagan women led Solomon astray. We shouldn't do the same, we should not do the same thing. 
Any questions on that article? I think that's what they're anticipating, especially because the Church of England at the time was very disordered. Uh, that yeah, there might not be perfect, or uh, there might not be church discipline being exercised ideally, and so they had to get a little more specific um, in that case, which is still fitting for our situation too, where someone could be a member of a church and yet not be uh, a good person to marry <laughs> on that principle. Yeah, you. Let's go on to Article 4. More about who you shouldn't marry and really who you can't marry. Marriage ought not to be within degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can, any, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. So this would really be going back to the laws in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, uh, the place in Scripture where it actually details uh, the, the laws of, against incest, against marrying uh, those who are too closely related to you um, and, and forbidding those marriages. Uh, consanguinity is, is relation by blood. Affinity would be relation by marriage. Uh, and there's both kinds of relationships, and I'm not going to go through all the different variations and situations that it describes, but, um, you know, don't marry your sibling, don't marry your uncle, don't marry, you know, you could uh, think of a, a lot of different relationships that are uh, forbidden uh, in the Word, uh, going back to Leviticus 18 and 20. Now, we have examples, of course, in the New Testament as well, where this is still a principle, like 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, where the man who had his father's wife is told to be, you know, church disciplined because uh, of what he was doing, that not even the pagans tolerated uh, such uh, a sin, and so should be taken seriously. Now, originally, the confession went on a little further uh, and said the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than uh, her own. Uh, which is kind of a debatable uh, extension of the principle found in Le Leviticus 18 through 20. Kind of goes beyond what's explicitly stated. Um, and so that's why it was taken out as seen to kind of go beyond what's actually stated in Scripture, uh, but was a, a principle one way to, to try to state the principle, to get more specific here, uh, but it was taken, that sentence was taken out in 1886. Um, so one of the other American revisions of the Confession of Faith. Yes. Oh, oh what, yeah. Ask, do you think it was rightly taken out? <laughs> I, I think it was rightly taken out um, as going beyond what's stated in, in Scripture. Um, it's kind of nice to have a neat principle, but I think it might go beyond what's required in Scripture. But if someone was actually going to, to do that, I would really recommend that they study the issue closely so they could do so in good conscience. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, the wife was dead, so. What, sorry, what was the question? I didn't quite catch that. The, the example I had was where his wife had died. Yeah. Oh, you, you're thinking of a different situation. Okay, yeah. Um, there's also the issue of... Um, Oh, it's going to be too complicated for me to, to get on my feet. But, you know, Herod had a, a wife that was, was unlawful for him to have, which was forbidden by the word, uh, where it was his brother's wife. And he ought not to have taken his brother's wife, because uh, that is explicitly forbidden in the word. Uh, plus, there were other things wrong with it, not only that. <laughs> um, like, his brother was still living. And uh, was that the situation you were talking about? Okay. Um, the only exception to that was the Leverett marriage, but Herod's situation was not a Leverett marriage situation. So that was kind of an exemption. All that would play into English history, too, because King Henry VIII was trying to divorce his wife on similar grounds. Um, also, the whole thing about not marrying Papists was very re uh, real to their situation, because the king was currently married to a Roman Catholic French woman. So um, obviously all of this gets very practical very quick when we're talking about marriage and divorce. Um, but yeah, don't, don't marry people who are too closely related to you. See Leviticus for more details. Let's go on to Article 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. So here it's um, not talking about all the different reasons, all the just occasions. That's going to be really covered in Article 6 with reference to marriage. But here is simply the relation of, of adultery and divorce, um, that Adultery provides just grounds for dissolving both a betrothal contract before marriage and for divorce, uh, divorcing, a, you know, ending a marriage uh, after it's been done. Um, Jesus himself makes that exception when he's talking about divorce, that a man who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, and then marries another, commits adultery. Uh, but he would not commit adultery by remarrying if that was on the grounds of sexual immorality. So... Um, adultery doesn't necessarily dissolve the marriage, it doesn't have to, but it would be just grounds for, uh, just grounds for divorce. And a betrothal contract, the way it's described here, is a relatively obsolete practice in our marriage. It's not quite the same as engagement is today. Um, it's kind of, engagement's kind of a less formal substitute for what they were doing, but certainly sexual immorality would still be uh, grounds for breaking off an engagement. So I, I don't think that is very controversial. Um, but you can think of when Joseph thought that Mary had done that, that he was going to put her away quietly. It's kind of the example being thought of there. Um, Article 6, the grounds and procedure of divorce. Obviously, the main point of Jesus' teachings on divorce is to affirm that God has brought these two together and no man should put them asunder, you know, is, is to discourage divorce and uh, to 
to, to affirm the ideal of marriage. Um, but there are a, a, a couple gra- possible grounds for a divorce that are mentioned in Scripture, Jesus himself referring to at least one of them. But this article begins with the recognition that of the point that people are too prone to come up with reasons for divorce. So let me go ahead and read this last article. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So man is is prone to to try to come up with arguments uh, to justify uh, divorce. And the covenant of marriage is designed to be for life. Uh, The only way for marriage to end without sin is death. Uh, But uh, there are also illegitimate divorces, which don't actually end the marriage. This is why remarriage would be uh, adultery. Uh, There is also uh, adultery, which would provide just grounds for divorce and remarriage. And then what's called here willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. And they're drawing from Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians 7, which speaks of marriage to an unbeliever. If you're married to an unbeliever, that's not just grounds for divorce. You should stay with that person if they're willing. But if the unbeliever departs, then the believer is not bound uh, and so not bound by that marriage. Uh, and the, the way it's stated here is, gets at uh, some of the complications and variations on what that might look like in a particular situation. Um, I think it's careful in saying it. Such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. No one should go very quickly into this. Paul also talks about if it's two Christians and they divorce, uh, you know, not for good reasons. They should stay uh, unmarried or, or reconcile. But, you know, as time goes along, as the church works with the person, you know, you might end up in the situation where uh, it is willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. Um, there could be uh, also the uh, sixth commandment duty in a violent situation where one spouse has to flee for their life. And in that case, the person physically leaving is not the one deserting. Um, it's not yet a case of divorce, but it could lead to such uh, a case as an as a instance of willful desertion. But it, it gets more complicated as you get into more specifics, but I think these are good principles for us to work with. Some people think they're too broad. Some people think they're too narrow. Uh, some people think there's, there's no... Thing as such, such thing as a legitimate divorce and remarriage. Uh, others would say that these are too limiting. I think these do justice to the teachings that we have uh, from Jesus, from the apostles, and also that because man is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder what God has put together, that there should also be an a orderly course of proceeding. You don't get just to decide it on your own whim. Uh, that there is to be the involvement of the church or civil magistrate. Um, In Ezra, when 
wives were put away for a particular cause. There's a lot of things unique about that situation. But it wasn't just a blanket statement, all right, all of you put away your wives. Even in that case, they went before the judges, each couple, and there was an orderly course of proceeding in each case um, as, a, as a good principle for us. Any questions on these last two articles on divorce? Yes, first here and then over there. Here? Yep. It's interesting to me that it says those who are not have to death. Um, so God's the one that, that is under his authority put the marriage together, the civil marriage between the church and the on the ring. Right, right. It's a, it's a divine institution. It's not a wax nose that, that people can shape the way they want it. And the church and civil magistrate, right, are, are not to put it asunder what God has put together. So, do we think of it in terms of the providence? Well, in, in the case of where there is just cause, the sin the, 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 the has broken. Oh, in providence, and, and also I think by the oath and the institution, that God instituted marriage. And it's also a, a covenant that he's a witness to, like you would say in Malachi 2. Um, and so in that way, he puts them together. But and so he, he is... not married in the church, do you say the same thing? Yes. Yeah. It's still, still uh, instituted by God uh, and still put together by God. It would still be under that same, uh, the same laws. You had a question? Yeah, I just want to kind of clarify something that everybody here probably already knows, but you know, when you talk about uh, dissolving of the marriage when the unbeliever leaves the marriage, um, Paul's not talking about uh, when, a, when a believer marries an unbeliever. He's already covered that. You know, only to marry the Lord. What he's talking about is when, like in my case, when I first married, I became a Christian. She did. And then she just uh, decided to leave the marriage. And I think that's what was being talked about. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, there is the case of where you end up in that situation, you, you know, by the conversion of one of the members where you have a mixed marriage. Um, which is different than saying, oh, it's okay to get into that situation where Paul is saying if you get remarried, to do so in the Lord. Yeah. All right, so uh, also interestingly, the last two articles here are dropped out of the Baptist Confession too. Uh, Just uh, statements on divorce were kind of controversial even when Parliament... Uh, printed the Westminster Confession of Faith. The English Parliament left out that portion as well. Um, but the, the Scots continued to, to uphold it, and Presbyterians have since then as well, uh, just as a historical note. There's also, like I said, the Seventh Commandment, and that's covered in the Catechisms, which is pretty important to upholding and maintaining what is stated here doctrinally in the chapter. Um, I know that the children have the catechism question on the Seventh Commandment there. Do one of them or anyone else that have it memorized want to tell me uh, what is required in the Seventh Commandment? Anyone? What is required in the Seventh Commandment? 
Yes. The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. So we want to uh, promote our own chastity, uh, our own faithfulness to our spouse if you're married, uh, or your own chastity otherwise, uh, if you're not married, but also for your neighbor and to promote the well-being of other marriages and the the purity of of other people. Uh, The larger catechism goes into more detail about how that involves our our speech, the way we dress, the way we act, um, and also even uh, one duty of the Seventh Commandment being marriage by those who have not the gift of continency, uh, that, that the use of God's a gift as a way to keep the seventh commandment, um, but there there would be more details there as well. Also, just as a note, William Perkins and William Googe were both Puritans that wrote on the topic of marriage and family. Uh, that would be good supplements to what's here in the Confession of Faith. Uh, we have Googe's book on marriage in our church library, although it's currently checked out, so it will make its way back eventually. Uh, Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your your love towards us in providing for our good. You have made all things good, and that even in this sinful world that you preserve blessings for us, although we know that sin can, can mar them. We pray that you would Uh, sanctify the marriages of our church, that they might uh, fulfill the ends for which you designed it, uh, that you would uh, bless the the love of husband and wife, uh, that you would also give good and wise and blessed marriages to those who seek them. Uh, We pray, Father, for uh, a, a witness of purity and chastity among your church in the midst of an age which does not value these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.